Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic, and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hello, Chris. Uh, Good to talk again. A few topics to discuss today. One is, um, I just like your reaction to a speech that Michael D. Higgins gave last Friday up in the Oris to a left-wing think tank called TASC, where he had a go at sort of economics in Ireland and economists and so on. So I want to talk about that. Uh, We've seen pretty dramatic developments in the States over the weekend. Our last podcast, we spoke about First Republic and the issues um, that culminated in the um, JP Morgan buying the deposits and the assets of First Republic Bank. So that's interesting. Uh, some data out of the Eurozone today. Um, and that why that's important really is because of the decision that the European Central Bank will be making on interest rates on Thursday. And of course, today, a two-day meeting of the US Federal Reserve's Federal Open Market Committee, that is the committee within the Federal Reserve that sets interest rates um, is deliberating on rates. So let's have a bit of a discussion on what we're expecting from that. And um, I'd like to start off by sort of complimenting you on a a podcast that you recorded last week um, with Mario Rosenstock, the comedian impersonator from Waterford. Um, who interviewed you about your life and about your views on economics. And I think it is the first of um, the first hour of a two hour podcast that um, will be published. So I know you saw some Twitter response to that. So uh, let's talk about that as well. But well done on that. Interesting, um, a fascinating insight into your views on economics and markets and so on. Um, 
I won't comment on the impersonation of my accent that um, Mario engaged in. Um, it was a beautiful, dulcet Waterford accent. So well done to Mario on that. But Chris, starting off with the Michael D. Higgins speech, a um, lot of things, a lot of stuff contained in it, a lot of messages. He said that Ireland must rebalance its economy, its ecology and its ethics. Um, he argued that the current exchequer surplus is not just the product of corporation tax, but has been made possible by an educated and hardworking population. Um, he says that economists in this country, and indeed econ- economists generally, I guess, are blinkered to the ecological challenge that's out there. He says that economics is a social science which no longer is connected or even attempts to be connected with the social issues and objectives for which it was developed over the centuries. It is incapable of offering solutions to glaring inadequacies of provision as to public needs and is devoid of vision. Um, He says that economists have a desire to transcend um, out material limits and rise above the state of um, nature. Um, Bloody hell. I I find some of these comments even difficult to read out because they're so bloody incomprehensible. But he says that economics is a deadly cocktail of exploding inequalities, massive deregulation and a globalization defined solely by trade densities, um, which has precipitated this economic crisis. Uh, Very hard stuff to read out, very hard stuff to make sense of it. But basically, you know, I think he's arguing that um, economists are obsessed with GDP growth, don't really care or think about anything else. Um, As I say, I found it incredibly difficult to read and to comprehend. I thought the use of language was extraordinary. Um, Certainly not very decipherable for, um, I think, most people. Um, But what was, what's your reaction? Jim, can I read something out to you and ask you what you make of this? Not the work of Michael D. Higgins, but the work of somebody else. And um, just, just give me your reaction. Postmodern science provides a powerful refutation of the authoritarianism and elitism inherent in traditional science, as well as an empirical basis for a democratic approach to scientific work. For, as Niels Bohr, the famous physicist, noted, a complete elucidation of one and the same object may require diverse points of view which defy a unique description. This is quite simply a fact about the world, much as the self proclaimed empiricists of modernist science might prefer to deny it. In such a situation, how can a self-perpetuating secular priesthood of credentialed scientists purport to maintain a monopoly on the production of scientific knowledge? The content and methodology of postmodern science thus provide powerful intellectual support for the progressive political project, understood in its broadest sense, the transgressing of boundaries, the breaking down of barriers, the radical democratization of all aspects of social, economic and political life. Conversely, one part of this project must involve the construction of a new and truly progressive science that can serve the needs of such a democratized society to be. I could go on, but it's a word salad, a word soup, constructed by somebody in the 1990s called Professor Sokal. Have you ever heard of the Sokal hoax? 
Sokal is, was a famous physicist who constructed an article made of word salad with all sorts of linguistic, sociological, postmodern claptrap designed to be in the tone, in the style of what this particular journal would publish. And he deliberately wrote this very long article, which got published, and every single aspect of it is absolute nonsense rubbish crap bullshit and he wanted i was afraid to respond because i um i just couldn't make out in her tail so i'm glad i wasn't missing something and does it strike you as having any similarities with michael d higgins speech uh, it does actually um M- michael d higgins speech was absolutely all over the place very difficult to understand uh, there was so much language thrown in there. There was contradictory stuff throwing in there. I mean, this, okay, at, at, at one level, he's talking about this obsession with economic growth. And he makes the point, I repeat again, the current exchequer surplus is not just the product of corporation tax, but has been made possible by an educated and hardworking people. Um, I mean, surely an educated and hardworking people are what drive economic growth amongst other things. So on, on, on the one hand, he's praising the hard work of education, hardworking people who generate economic activity. But on the other hand, he's saying that um, we're obsessed with economic growth. In contradictions every place. Well, you could argue more broadly that the um, corporation tax receipts of Ireland are the result of the education, hard work and effort of workers in Ireland, absolutely, but also France, Spain, Germany, United States, and China, and indeed a lot of other countries. So it was an example of, at best, a half truth. I would say it's probably this one's probably an example of a tenth truth. Um, and the speech generally was full of half truths, outright untruths, and bullshit, quite frankly. And uh, it was one of those, as I say. SoCal style word salads, uh, word soups designed to impress people that use long words uh, almost at random. It re- reminded me of a famous Morecambe and Wise sketch about uh, music uh, in which uh, Eric Morecambe, for our younger listeners, this was a pair of British comedians famous many, many years ago. And their guest on the show was a famous uh, classical music conductor called Andre Previn. And Eric Morecambe was playing the piano in the most discordant, non-musical way possible. And this classical musician was wincing at the sound of the piano in the same way that I think any economist would wince at the words of Michael D. Higgins. And Andre Previn, the classical music conductor and composer, uh, accused Mr. Morecambe of not playing any kind of recognisable music. And Morecambe was hurt, and he said, these are all the right notes, I'm just not playing them in the right order. And I felt that with the words that uh, President Higgins was using, it was a bit like Eric Morecambe trying to play the piano. Um, The president was trying to introduce a critique of economics that just made no sense on its own merits, because I think eminent professors have said um, in print today in the Irish Times that they didn't understand it. It was just words strung together in a way that had no meaning or no content. The idea that economics... Uh, only pays attention to GDP is just wrong. It's not true. Um, Economics pays attention to lots of other things. The economics curriculum has been dramatically reformed in recent years across many universities around the world. And the idea that we don't pay any attention to the environment 
and the way economics can help the environmental crisis. I mean, that's just a lie. I mean, there are plenty of economists working very hard on solutions, drawing on the tools and techniques that economists use to try and help with the environmental crisis. It was a crude characterization of an economics that I don't recognize at all. One of the professors quoted in the Irish Times said it was it was more reminiscent of something from the 1970s before he was born. Um, And I suspect that was because it was before he was born, because I did learn some economics in the 1970s and it bears no representation or resemblance to anything that was taught back then. So it was a fiction. It was a fantasy. It was word gloop. uh, So um, I I should probably stop there because I will probably get the thought police on my case. But I thought your comment, Jim, in the paper in the Irish Times was right on the money. You said that if you are going to be anti-economic growth, because underlying Higgins' remarks was a degrowth, anti-economic growth strategy, see what happens to your society if you don't have economic growth. And conversely, ask 800 million Chinese people who in the last couple of decades have been lifted out of poverty by economic growth. See what happens to mortality see what happens to life expectancy, see what happens to disease, see what happens to pollution, see what happens to the environment if we stop growing. And I think you might be very surprised. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was nonsense. I thought it was rubbish. I thought it was bullshit. I'll stop there. Uh, Yeah, I'm not an academic, Chris, but I I do teach um, an economics class in Smurfit Business School on an MBA, and it's called Economics, Business and Society. So what I try and cover that class is, number one, what economic growth is all about. Secondly, how that feeds in and influences business. And thirdly, how all of that feeds into societal outcomes. You know, I I talk at great length about the inadequacies of GDP as a measure of anything. It is a crude measure. Um, It does need to be refined. It does need to be interpreted. Um, You do need to understand what it tells you and what it doesn't tell you. And I have always argued that it is the quality of the growth we generate that's much more important than the quantity of that growth. So that's me as a non-academic. That's the sort of stuff I try and teach. Um, And I can only assume that the academics in the universities around this country and indeed around the world um, are doing that at a much more sophisticated level than I am. Uh, But, you know, to suggest that, the economics of the 70s that Michael D possibly grew up with is is still the rigueur, I I think is totally wrong. Um, There was a book written a few years ago by an economist and a former Financial Times journalist, Diane Coyle, called GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History. And, you know, she wrote in that that GDP was a good measure for the 20th century but is increasingly inappropriate for a 21st century economy, which is driven by innovation, services and intangible goods. So there is another economist and and I have a bookshelf of books to that effect, basically criticizing um, GDP as a measure of anything. Um, And it's it's much more nuanced than Michael D is suggesting. Um, I commented in that piece in the paper also Uh, that it's many years since I took seriously the utterances of Michael D. Higgins. And I have to say I stand over that. And um, I thought what he was trying to say on Friday was um, bizarre in the extreme. I thought it was just mostly wrong, Jim, Mm -hmm. to be honest. 
just wrong. It must have been born of a, 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 curse, a little knowledge being a dangerous thing, perhaps. Maybe he did read some economics a long time ago. Maybe he reads the wrong newspapers. Maybe he's being advised by the wrong people. Or maybe he's just a bullshitter. Yeah, some, somebody commented to me in a text actually this morning that um, yeah, Mike, Michael D should have alluded to his heroes in Venezuela and Nicaragua and how well they've managed their economies and their societies. Chris, moving on to First Republic, uh, as I said in my introduction, we mentioned in our last podcast um, about the problems that were emerging there um, on yes, Monday morning, uh, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, sold the uh, deposits and assets of First Republic to JP Morgan. This brings an end to the latest iteration of the 2023 banking crisis. There's, there's a few things I think are worth pointing out about the First Republic situation. Um, we got their first quarter earnings on April 24th, did not make for pleasant reading. And that basically was the beginning of the end for that institution. But some, some of the statistics are interesting. At the end of 2022, um, First Republic had $213 billion in assets, $167 billion in loans and $32 billion in bonds. And this was funded by... 176 billion in deposits, 7 billion in short-term funding or short-term loans, 9 billion in long-term funding and 18 billion in high-quality capital. Okay, so that's the the balance sheet at the end of last year. Um, When the bank published its results on April 24th for the first quarter, it stated that it had lost 102 billion in deposits Um, during the first quarter okay that's a massive uh, percentage of the total deposits on its book okay it engaged in short-term borrowing um, to try and shore up the balance sheet short-term borrowing at the end of the first quarter was 80 billion up from 7 billion at the end of 2022 Um, the bank it's it's different than silicon valley bank it's different than signature bank there are similarities but you know it had a high percentage of deposits that were not insured under the fdic scheme so a lot of depositors took flight worried we saw six banks in march step in and provide 30 billion in deposits to the bank to try and shore up confidence uh, didn't work. Um, the bank had engaged in a massive amount of cheap mortgage lending. Um, for example, it is quoted in the Financial Times that Mark Zuckerberg is reputed to have a 30-year loan of $6 million at a rate of 1.05%. And of course, in a rising interest rate environment, the value of that loan and many of the other loans on its mortgage book um, was significantly damaged. So in a nutshell, what we have here is another financial institution um, that has basically gone bust due to the monetary tightening that has occurred since March of last year. The, the question, of course, is, well, number one, do you agree with my assessment? And number two, how many more banks like this are out there? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, that's the $64,000 billion question, maybe. In public, uh, regulators and politicians and anybody involved in this takeover by J.P. Morgan is saying that this is just a one-off. And of course, it, in the United States, it's the third one-off in uh, just a few weeks. Uh, how many one-offs uh, make a trend is the very open question. The three are very similar uh, banks that have gone under. Um, the First Republic was the second biggest failure in U.S. banking failure history. You might remember from the great financial crisis, we had something called Washington Mutual. That, that, Wamu, that was a bit bigger. But the second, third, and fourth biggest failures in U.S. banking failure history have all occurred in the last few weeks. Um, It's beginning to look a bit like a trend. And I must admit, I am more worried than the public remarks of people like Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, the buying bank. There are similarities and differences with the great financial crisis. The similarities are very obvious. We've got failing financial institutions. The differences are essentially the cause of what is... uh, has happened. Back then, it was people not paying their mortgages, so that the loans that banks and other institutions had made were not getting paid back. So they were starting to make losses and threatened insolvency. The threatened insolvency of a bank like First Republic, for example, was not because of loans not being paid back. People like Zuckerberg are still servicing their loans. They're still paying them back. It's the fact that those loans the value of those loans went down in the marketplace because these things are like bonds. They can be priced. And it was the fact that the value of First Republic's loans had fallen so much that the bank on paper uh, was technically probably insolvent. Um, I stress that it was a technical thing because it hadn't actually realized uh, all of these losses. If it had been allowed to continue as a going concern by some other route, it may well have become solvent again. Banks can move in both directions. But the threat of insolvency caused an old-fashioned bank run in a new way. The old-fashioned bank run is that depositors, thinking that their money is no longer safe because the institution, the bank, is insolvent, take their money out. And of course, these days, they do it with the click of a mouse and they they don't have to queue up outside the bank to take their money in checks or in sacks. So there are old and new aspects to to this crisis. It's going to cost the US banking system, but not the taxpayer, $13 billion. And that's the uh, loss, if you like, that has been crystallized by all of this that will be borne by a levy on US banks. JP Morgan, we think, but we don't know, we think has made out like bandits and has got, gotten itself a very, very good deal. 
um, through all sorts of uh, routes. Um, but does it portend more to come or is it the last of the one-offs? I don't know. I suspect nobody knows, actually. But what I would fear is that there are more to come. And the, the, the simple reason why I think there's more to come, Jim, is that if two or three banks were doing it, then I can't see that a few more haven't been doing it as well. Because as we know, um, all companies, but particularly banks, their, their behavior, they tend to mimic each other. There's safety in numbers. There's crowd behavior, madness of crowds, herding, whatever um, description you want, you want to make. So I, I would be extremely surprised if the business model of these banks hasn't been replicated somewhere else. And this is where the rubber hits the road because the business model of these banks was essentially that they bet that the low interest rate environment in recent years uh, would persist more or less forever. And then when interest rates shot up last year and this, uh, their business model was found to be very wanting. It's also the case that the regulators have been asleep on the job and the Federal Reserve has put its hand up um, in that regard. So we've got a bad business model and dopey regulators creating a new problem compared to the financial crisis. So I don't know. I have no idea if there are more to come, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are. Which And if, if there are more, then it, I don't think it's going to take many more for people to say, well, actually, this is not just a series of one-offs that are very self-contained. This has the makings of something far more serious. And the serious problem, Jim, is that you and I have discussed endlessly the effects of rising interest rates in the United States. And the thing that we haven't said so far, because it's only just become apparent, is that the mystery of where does the damage occur from those rises interest rates, we kept looking at the economy, we're economists after all, where's the hit to GDP? Where's the hit to the labour market? We talk about that mystery. Why haven't the interest rate rises affected the economy, the labour market? Well, we've just found out what those interest rate rises have affected. It's damaged the regional banking system in the United States. It's damaged those banks that built a business model on low interest rates forever. And I would be very surprised if there aren't more waiting to come out of the woodwork. Yeah, well, one of the um, in interpretations of First Republic, um, and really before it got into serious difficulty in March when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, was that on the surface, you know, it did appear like a successful bank that wasn't engaging in obviously risky activities, uh, but it just shows the impact that interest rates can have on any financial institution. Um, there's, there's two things that definitely need to happen at this juncture. One, that those regulations that were eased back in 2018 for banks with deposits of less than 250 billion at the instigation of Donald Trump, that deregulation needs to be reversed. Um, all banks, regardless of size of deposit, need to be heavy regulated. And secondly, uh, well, I, I guess it ties into this that we need much higher regulatory standards for what we call mid-sized banks like um, First Republic and indeed Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Uh, but as I say, one of the things that would worry you is the fact that on the surface, it appeared like you know a reasonably successful bank that wasn't engaging in too much risky activity. Um, the other, I think, point that's interesting about what has happened over the weekend with JP Morgan, 
Um, JP Morgan has now acquired the two largest bank collapses in US history, Washington Mutual and First Republic. Um, it now holds more than 10% of the insured deposits in the US banking system, which is against the um, regulations. Um, uh, but but, but they, they just decided that in an emergency situation like that, these regulations should actually be ignored. But apart from that, it has also created, you know, an incredibly larger concentrated bank uh, that now most definitely is too big to fail. And ultimately, when you have um, banks in a system that have way are way too big, um, it does damage competition. It does create risks when something goes wrong. In other words, that too big to fail um, phenomenon comes to the surface. So it, it's a very dangerous situation. And uh, it's very hard not to believe that there are not other financial institutions in that sort of size bracket of First Republic uh, that have equal problems as a result of what's happened on the interest rate front. And the other question is, what are we going to do about it? Because we, this is now the second time in a few years that the banking system has threatened to blow us up, economically speaking. And are we going to sit here and just accept that this is something that is part of nature, part of something that is inevitable, and or, or are we going to do something about it? And I would suggest a very radical solution, which is that ultimately we have to see retail banking the accepting of deposits and the making of simple loans for houses and cars and overdrafts and other things like that are utility businesses which uh, do not deserve chief executives earning multi-million bonuses or, or indeed anybody doing anything terribly complicated. And a combination of two things should be therefore done, which is um, introduce artificial intelligence into the lending uh, decisions so that bad loans don't blow us up in the way that human decisions did in the past. And the separation of investment or casino banking from retail banking be reestablished. And these things regulated like public utilities, they should become like water uh, utilities, they should become like electricity and gas utilities, heavily regulated, with their uh, profitability capped and that they should become like the sewerage system, a vital part of what it is that we do. That, yeah, it's a real problem when a sewer breaks, and it's a real problem when a bank breaks, but we invest enough, we regulate them enough to make sure that the sewage system, the water system, keeps working as it should, and that we don't actually have to read about it every single day in the newspapers about causing problems. So I think the time is approaching when we're going to have to be very radical uh, and the final straw that's broken the camel back for me is your point about J.P. Morgan. I mean, it's becoming too big to, it, it is too big to fail. It's become even bigger, too big to fail than it was. And uh, it's, it's, it's becoming dominant in the U.S. at least, if not globally. It's, it's now a massive bank. It's not just people that bank with J.P. Morgan. Uh, Jamie Dimon was boasting overnight how countries and the IMF use J.P. Morgan as their bank. So I'm not at all convinced that these banks deserve to be uh, regarded in the way that they have in the past. I'd break them up, um, I would regulate them, and I would apply technology as it's emerging now, artificial intelligence, to take over some of their functions. I think that AI will do a much better job than a lot of bankers have done.
Uh, it's an interesting analogy between sewage systems and banks. Um, <laughs> I think the, the one thing they do have in common is the smell. Um, Chris, moving on to the the interest rate decisions that are going to be taken this week. Um, this morning, we had headline inflation out of the euro area, increasing from 69 to 7%. However, core inflation, which excludes food, energy, alcohol and tobacco, fell from 57 to 5.6%. 5.6% is still very close to historic highs. Um, so this isn't a cause of relief. But from the European Central Bank's point of view, the one thing that does stand out to me is the fact that service sector inflation picked up from 5.1 to 5.2%. And that's, you know, part of the core measure of inflation. And I think it's what um, central bankers are clearly most worried about at the moment. We had um, money and credit date and bank lending survey for the euro area um, released also this morning. Um, I was interested that the survey didn't show any, or at least this was the interpretation. There were no clear signs that the banking woes we saw in March have impacted on credit conditions. Okay, so SVB and all of that stuff hasn't had an impact on credit conditions in the European banking system. However, having said that, it still states that credit is tight and that banks have tightened up their credit standards over the last few months against a background of rising interest rates, higher funding costs, and they have a higher perception of risk at this juncture. So in a nutshell, does that mean that the European Central Bank is going to deliver a quarter or a half on Thursday of this week? I don't know, but it's certainly not good data, is it, Jim, from their perspective? And it would push you towards thinking it's going to be a half. We need to remind ourselves that the ECB has lagged both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England with its rate hikes, both in terms of the starting date and the amount that it has raised rates. Lagarde is coming in for a huge amount of criticism at the moment. And the uh, EFT carried an interesting profile of her over the weekend in which it was said that by sources close to Lagarde that she's very unhappy at the ECB and would prefer to be back in Washington, D.C., which she regards as her second home. Uh, so I think there's trouble at Mill and they will attempt to uh, head off a lot of this criticism by being even more macho than ever. So uh, good luck to them. I, I hope they make the right decision. Um, we've talked about what we think the right decision is a lot. But uh, in terms of Irish mortgage holders, uh, I think your interest rates are going to be going up by, by half on Thursday. That's a hostage to fortune. It's a forecast. I'll be pleasantly surprised if they don't do it, but that's what I think they're going to do. And the Fed is more likely to give us a quarter on Wednesday evening. Yes, with the rhetoric equally important as what they actually do. The rhetoric about what they think they're going to be doing through the second half of this year is also very, very important. Um, I mentioned the podcast you did with Mario Rosenstock where you had a really interesting discussion on economics, markets and so on. Um, and as I say, there was a an attempt to impersonate my voice contained within. Um, so I'm flattered, Mario. But uh, can I also uh, just refer to a one of the comments that you saw on Twitter? Yeah, uh, it was a great experience meeting Mario Rosenstock for the first time. And it was great um, having you phone in, Jim, and berate me for many things, not least for telling, not telling you before that my, my ancestors hail from Waterford. 
the uh, the family name of my Waterford ancestors was actually Ivory. I don't know if you know anybody with that surname down there, but uh, that that's that's uh, what you were moaning about. I do in um, Kilkenny, not in Waterford. Yeah, there was one comment that really caught my eye on Twitter, in which somebody it was addressed to Mario rather than me, but I was included on the distribution. And this commenter said, uh, "Would you please stop?" impersonating people like the Taoiseach, the Tornister, uh, and a whole host of other politicians and luminaries such as Ryan Tubridy, I think. Um, because, and I'm quoting now, they are all traitors. They have wrecked Ireland. They have destroyed Ireland. They have, they are traitors and creating, created this hellhole that is modern Ireland. I just wonder where people get these ideas from we've talked about this a lot we know that certain journalists are also on this uh, theme of Ireland as a dystopian hellhole and I just wonder why people make these comments I understand that people have problems with housing they have difficulties with the health service but as we have said many times before Jim taken in the round Ireland life in Ireland these days has never been better in its entire history. It's a damn sight better than an awful lot of other places on the planet. And you wonder where this perspective of a dystopian hellhole actually comes from, because people clearly feel it, clearly believe it. And it may well be that because housing is the issue that it is, causes people to accuse our body politic of being traitors. But I wonder whether it's other things going on as well, given that I think that Ireland is such a nice place in which to work and live notwithstanding an acknowledgement of the issues. I wonder, for example, have people reached the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You might remember Maslow from your social science courses and studies, in which once you've sorted out food, eat, and water, and all that other stuff of of our basic needs, you're supposed to do self-actualization. And what actually happens is that people get absolutely terrified, scared. Maybe they just get bored and can't do the top of the pyramid thing because, frankly, Jim, relative to its own history and relative to pretty much a lot of other places in the world, Ireland is at the top of the pyramid. And I think people, some people just don't know what to do with it now that they're there. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more that self-actualization piece is definitely where many people are falling down. Uh, we, we, we've got here, we've achieved a lot of success. Uh, we would always acknowledge there are still many uh, challenges to sort out and problems, housing being top of the agenda health is another serious issue uh but as as we've often said chris shows the country that doesn't have those sorts of problems even the um lauded much lauded scandinavian model um is really creaking at the edges at the moment particularly countries like sweden so no country has achieved perfection all the challenges but we have achieved remarkable progress and i i definitely think it is the case that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, you know, we are top of the pyramid and people are struggling to actually um, deal with that. Um, I don't think there's anything you can do about it, to be honest. Um, I, I think what naturally will happen from there is that it will drive us in the direction of more extreme politics. Um, it remains to be seen what the implications of those more extreme politics will be. Uh, but I think there could be a rude awakening for people who think it's bad at the moment. Yes, Jim. I think my point is a very simple one, is that if you think it's bad at the moment, um, you may be surprised by what happens next. OK, Chris, great to talk. Speak to you soon, Bye. Jim.
You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 